and welcome to Talking Who to You, a podcast dedicated to the big Finnish audio adventures of Doctor Who. My name is JG McQuarrie, and as always, I'm here with my co-host Kev Koser. Hi! Hey Kev, how are you doing this week? I'm doing really great, and I'm just excited that we have this guest back. Yes, we're very happy to have a guest with us this week, and that means that we have Alistair Wilkins with us. Say hello, Alistair. Hello, how's everyone doing? Doing great here, how are you doing? I'm doing really well. I'm excited to be back in the in the podcasting world. I've uh, got the computer running. I've got uh, multiple TARDIS wiki pages pulled up for this one. I've got uh, my newly acquired Fifth Doctor action figure sitting on my uh, laptop, So, which is maybe a little hint for those who haven't read the episode description as to which part of the world we're going to. So, yeah, I'm excited. Fantastic. Well, it sounds like you could not possibly be better prepared. This week, we are going to be covering circular time. So, yes, that means that we're going to be dipping into the world of the Fifth Doctor and Nyssa. Kev, would you care to give us our summary? Sure. Circular Time is Big Vanish's first audio anthology. It is four half-hour stories, as opposed to their usual two- or one-hour format. Uh, it's the four parts, each take the name of seasons, spring, summer, autumn, and winter. Spring has the Doctor and Nyssa track down a Time Lord who's sort of become the head of a avian alien society. Summer has the Doctor Nyssa chained up, as per usual, in a London dungeon, the Tower of London specifically, as they are interrogated by Isaac Newton. Autumn takes us to Stockbridge, where Nyssa has a brief seasonal romance while the Doctor plays cricket, as is his want. And Winter takes place during the Fifth Doctor's regeneration, as Nyssa has telepathic contact with the Doctor and is able to assist him in fully regenerating. Fantastic, thank you very much. Well, yeah, this is definitely an unusual format for Big Finish to try and embrace. So, Alistair, let's start with you, since you are our guest star this week. How did you find this one? I love it. I uh, listened to this one, I think, fairly close to when it was first released. I certainly, this is one that I, I think I owned on CD, so this is definitely going back a ways in terms of um, when I first listened to it, and... Uh, I think revisiting it now, um, I was, I was definitely struck by how much, um, how hard it hit me in points. Um, I think especially uh, autumn, I actually teared up a bit as I was listening to it. Uh, winter as well. I mean, I think those are the two more emotional ones. Uh, spring, I think is still is, is a very clever little sort of. Um, it always feels kind of like the appetizer for the rest of the set. Um, and then summer. Uh, we'll get into this more because I, I have a lot to say about Summer, but it is one of my favorite, favorite, favorite performances, bits of writing ever. Sir Isaac Newton is just, I love their portrayal of Sir Isaac Newton here. Um, so I'm going to have a lot more to gush about Sir Isaac Newton and how they choose to portray him here. But yeah, I, I love this one. Fantastic. And I don't think you will be uh, entirely by yourself when it comes to the gushing. Kev, um, how did you find this one? Oh, I mean, I... Love it as well. Uh, I th think all four stories are very fantastic in their own way. I like the variety of the stories, and I just, I mean, yeah, I can't say it better than Alice and Arcade. I think they're all just very nice little, like, samplings, but they each are sort of rich in their own way. Yeah, I think that's probably a fair assessment. I think particularly, it's like one of the weird things about the way that this sort of, uh, play is constructed is I think that Spring is by far and away the weakest of the four sort of stories or vignettes that we have here and it's still really good and that is such a 
such a high kind of standard to to strike. I mean, like we've we've talked about Paul Cornell on the podcast before, and we know that we love him and we know that we sort of admire him as a writer. But I think this sort of pushes him into whole new levels where he's not just um, sort of doing that new adventures thing. He's not just following on from the TV show or whatever, but he's finding something sort of genuinely new to do with both these characters and kind of with the format that Big Finish is capable of doing. You couldn't, I don't think, get away with doing something like this on the TV show. And for me, that's exactly what Big Finish exists for. It, it should be to try and kind of push the format in, in this kind of way. Yeah, and I want to give uh, also a shout out. I think this one, this is a co-written piece. Mike Maddox, uh, I think, it seems at least per the TARDIS wiki, he wrote Spring and Summer and Paul Cornell, uh, though based off of some ideas and I think a short story by Paul Cornell. So Paul Cornell... Um, obviously, long-time uh, writers, you say, of the New Adventures and, and uh, new series episodes as well, just for those who are, the name is only ringing a bell as opposed to immediately remembering everything about Paul Cornell. Um, but yeah, uh, Mike Maddox, who also wrote some other ones, uh, I would shout out, he also wrote Legend of the Cybermen later on in the range, which is uh, one that I have a huge amount of affection for, um, and also co-wrote Trial of the Valyard, which I actually recently listened to, and I, I, I also... Love that one, and I think... Um, so anyway, the, the point is, is just like, yeah, I, I, I love... I think what I love about this one, um, and I think there's a real argument that, that Big Finish peaked with its beginning with these anthologies. I mean, there's a, some really great anthology ones that they've done since then. I don't know whether they've ever... Circular Time, though, is something very special, and I think what you're sort of saying there, that the versatility of these stories, and I think they also are very smart in knowing... Um, how much each story needs. Uh, I think you're right that Spring is... I mean, it's a throwaway, I think, but it also it knows what it's doing and gets out of there. It feels like it's very quick. I haven't timed it. Maybe it is the same length as all the others, but it certainly feels like it's a lot shorter than the others, and it's just sort of like, yep, I know what I need to do, and I'm going to get out of here, as opposed to sort of drag it out. And then the others, especially Autumn, feels like it's given a little bit more time to spread out. And again, that may just be an illusion, because I didn't actually check the timings, but they all feel... Which I guess... I, they all feel very, very well paced for what their stories are and what they're trying to do. Yeah, I completely agree. I think all the stories, like, there's some danger of some of these half-hour stories that Big Finish will start experimenting more and more uh, with this sort of new regime change, which we should definitely talk about when I finish this thought. But uh, I think some of them can be let down by just being so slight. I think all of these are very rich stories on their own. And I think each one... They could, you could have filled them out to be longer, but they wisely don't. They just get in and out with such clarity and accuracy that I think it they're all pretty unique and fascinating in their own way. Well, I think particularly when it comes to spring, one of the things that this story kind of really relies on is the strength of the relationship, um, not not even necessarily between the Doctor and Nyssa, but I think particularly between Peter Davison and Sarah Sutton, and you can just hear how well they respond to being given this kind of material. Like Nyssa has, um, you know, kind of reservations at the beginning. She's not sure what's going on. She gets dragged into what is essentially a fairly kind of light and frivolous story. Um, but she still has real weight to the character. And I think just as an introduction to what the remaining three stories are going to do, I think it does sort of provide that, if you'll excuse the pun, springboard. It's not something which is, um, you know, ever going to be a, you know, a great classic for the ages but I don't think that's really its its function it, it does act as that kind of prelude and it gives Sarah Sutton the space to kind of land Nissa's characterization and the way that the character is going to be used throughout yeah the remaining three pieces and and 
like even if the rest of it was nothing and I, like there's there's a great pleasure in having like a, a a completely avian society which can only be portrayed in audio because the idea of doctor who trying to do this on tv is it's obviously beyond impossible but so that's a nice little conceit but yeah if it's if it's just for like sarah sutton establishing the way that nissa is going to be used and really like stamping her authority on this then that alone makes spring worthwhile I have a question for you too, because you're definitely living more in this era of big finish uh, than, than I am. And I, I, I know you mentioned the regime change. This is this is we're sort of touching on an interesting era in big finish. But I haven't listened to as many uh, Nissa stories recently. It, I love how snarky Nissa is in this story in particular, and in this in this release in general. Like I know that. Um, I think that Nissa and Sarah Sutton are generally recognized as one of the great triumphs of Big Finish and giving her an opportunity to show more of the character than she got to in TV. Is she normally quite this just just wisecracking as she is here? I mean, I love it. I don't have any issue with it. I just like I, it was a pleasant surprise to be reminded of just how much Nissa is not taking the Doctor or anyone else's crap in this story. I think it varies from release to release. I distinctly remember. Uh, Winter for the Adept, one of the very early Big Finish stories, having a very snarky Nyssa. And I think that's like a, one of the extreme ends, with the other extreme sort of being her very passive portrayal on TV. And I think generally it falls somewhere in the middle. I think it definitely does a lot to give her a little bit more uh, personality, especially like without other companions, like without Tegan around to sort of bring that sort of same level of uh, snarkiness. <laughs> to sort of bring down the fifth doctor i think nissa has to sort of fill that role well as an addition to all sort of other things going on with that character yeah it's i, I like it a lot i i uh i do think the uh um yeah as you say the doctor needs someone especially this doctor needs someone to to be calling him out a little bit and uh yeah it's a role that fits her very well turtle does that too i just realized it's like it's a commonality between, and perry yeah a lot of commonality in fifth doctor companions needs someone who calls him out yeah, and it's it's something that this character is sort of strangely suited for. I, I want to say that it's kind of building on what Nyssa was doing in sort of Arc of Infinity when she was kind of bullying the Doctor into kind of repairing the TARDIS and trying to sort of push him in that direction. But that, that characterization on TV doesn't really go all that far. But I think the characterization that she gets um that we see here, I think it kind of grows out of that. And it's clearly something that Sarah Sutton is very comfortable being able to do it's not pushing her into a, a region that she can't deliver on or that doesn't feel true to the character it's clearly something she's capable of and that sits comfortably with the character but like it's not standard operating procedure exactly but it's not not standard operating procedure if that makes sense yeah i remember i'm also thinking of uh this is later on but but i think i remember some similar stuff in uh in at least one part of the Stockbridge trilogy they did with the doctor and nissa so and i think you're right also that kind of that feeling of part of the joy of circular time is it some of the stories it definitely feels like they're more uh nissa and the fifth doctor stories and some of them there's a little bit but it, they're definitely always playing with the sliders and some of it you're, it's definitely about davison and sutton as uh actors who really enjoy working with each other and 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 all of that and i think they're you know they're not doing anything super meta or anything but as you say i think the i think that's a good observation that you, you it, some of the performance is very very uh wound, tied up in the in the actors themselves so it's it's a very enjoyable experience and i think it it adds a little bit of energy to spring that i i I don't think the story minds. Let's put it like that. I, I'm not going to... I like Spring a lot, but I, I think it every little extra bit helps with that one because it is the slightest of the four. There's this uh, 
have to say unsourced claim and the wiki page for circular time, oh, but it's the one best. I think is <laughs> I like a lot. <laughs> that says uh, the intention of the story is to have go through four different eras of the Doctor and Mrs. friendship. So spring is like in the beginning of when they first traveling together, probably like right after time flight, and then winter is obviously and that one's obviously the end. But I guess you could say that autumn is supposed to be like close to the end, closer to arc of infinity before. Uh, Tegan comes back and they part. And I mean, there's nothing really supporting that. I don't think there's much of a growth. I have to listen again with this in mind, but I didn't pick up on a lot of growth in the relationship in spring, summer, autumn beyond what's within the stories themselves. But I do. I don't know. I like the idea of it almost sort of cementing Nyssa as the fifth Doctor companion. I guess something that Big Finish has sort of almost out of necessity because, uh, I mean, Janet Fielding wouldn't come back for the longest time and I think Mark Strickson isn't around a lot as not as much as Sarah Sutton so she was sort of became the default fifth doctor companion and she sort of cemented as the one the same way like ace is with seven or rose is with like nine and ten she is the most iconic in this sort of retroactive way which I find I think this does a good job sort of honoring that and really cementing that fan mythologically wise well, absolutely. And I mean, we've talked plenty of times in the podcast about sort of uh, big Finnish reclamation projects, and there are a few which are sort of more successful than, than Nyssa. And like particularly in this first story, um, I mean, there is a degree of, I guess, naivete, and she clearly doesn't understand a lot of the concepts which are are sort of being discussed, especially when the Doctor and Zero are kind of talking to each other. Like, she has questions about how there could be politics around regeneration and it's kind of interesting listening to it now when we have a female doctor in the in the lead the way that the doctor says yes well there are our class politics there are gender politics involved all this kind of stuff so it's kind of it's kind of weirdly progressive in that kind of way while still being able to root that in 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 that kind of slight yeah naivete i suppose that, that nissa has about the doctor who he is where he comes from and all that kind of stuff i don't know that that's quite a strong enough hook to hang the whole four different phases of the friendship thing on but i mean i definitely think that it's a valid reading and and those moments within that first story definitely do lean into it yeah and there's also like nissa being very judgmental of the avian society which i mean it's again it's not unjustified but you could imagine her having a more complex uh understanding of things like she seems very um leading with her heart in this story which again as, as soon as i say it i'm like ah, i don't really want to i don't really want to get into time lord real politics straight away but like it is um but it, yeah it's something that you feel like i think you can kind of compare that with maybe she she certainly seems more worldly in summer and then autumn is something else again so i i can i feel like it's one of those things where this unsourced claim um feels very much like the kind of thing where it's sort of that initial inkling of an idea or the sort of like the sort of vague theme at the back of Maddox and Cornell's heads as they were writing this that that they didn't end up making super explicit or, or sort of really strongly weaving into the story, which I think is is fine. But I, I think it's one of those. It's yeah, it feels like it's a it informs the story or it's a nice way to inform a listening. But um, yeah, you can you, I think you can sort of see the 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 traces of it, even if it's not a super big part of what they're doing here. Yeah, I, I focus on spring specifically, I guess. We should get into that. Uh, I think we've been circling around it. It's fine. Um, <laughs> none of the problem is none of the characters are particularly memorable, and considering uh, how memorable the characters' the next two stories are and then how winter is this whole other thing, 
Uh, yeah, I think that sort of is the knock against it. I think none of us have like a problem with Spring. It's just the definitely the most disposable of the stories. Like Zero never really becomes anything more than sort of what he represents, which is this sort of Time Lord like ideas and I guess sort of anti Time Lord ideas of their methods. And the Avon Society feels very sketched in, but and they're all cool stuff. I quite like the idea of Zero being somebody who's kind of gone out into the universe from the Time Lords, who isn't just like another rebel. He's not a master or a Rani or a Valyard or whatever. He's just this guy that's kind of drifted off and he's kind of specifically manipulated this situation, not exactly in an evil way, certainly in a way that leads him to get what he's after and, and the Doctor is completely hoodwinked by him. But it's, it's sort of quite refreshing, I suppose, in a way to meet a character like that who doesn't just fall into like the usual traps of the Time Lords. I, I know, Kev, you're a bigger fan of the, the Gallifrey Chronicles than, than I am, but you know, there's still a slight tendency even there where we have more space to flesh out characters for people in Time Lord society to fall back into those, those kind of slightly predetermined roles. I, I like the fact that Zero doesn't fall into that kind of category. I wish that they had done a bit more work to expand what category he might therefore fall into. But but I think, you know, like Hugh Fraser gives a good performance. It's it's slightly moustache twirly without the character actually being a moustache twirling villain, which is quite unusual. Um, you know, there's enough around the character to kind of hold it together. And I, I, I do kind of appreciate that, even if it doesn't necessarily end up with the most kind of dynamic character as a result. Yeah, the, the idea of... There's a few things that I like about this story, and I think the 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 thing about Gallifrey is is uh, the allusion to that is well taken, and we let's I won't divert us into a long discussion of that, but I certainly I go back and forth on enjoying what um, you know Big Finish is like some of its ideas around Gallifrey, while also generally feeling like they have not really managed to break away from how the new series once described it as just, you know, the, the Anthony Stewart headline of a bunch of dusty old senators from school reunion. Um, and so this, this at least to me feels like something a little different. I like the idea of, uh, there's a lot of little references here that feel like they're actually kind of a little bit of a tapestry of a particular part of Time Lord society. Like I think the the kind of the doctor talking about his his exile and having his face changed and um and the fact that zero has to do that as as well i don't know there, there's some interesting ideas there the part about how the doctor wouldn't worry if it weren't a pridonian and he's a pridonian like i i i there's just some it feels like there's some there's some richness there that i i enjoy in terms of i think that this doctor in particular i always find his sort of uh, you know, youthful uh, exuberance, and but also sort of seems to feel the weight of Time Lord responsibility more than I think any of his predecessors who are either running away or harumphedly exiled. Um, it, you know, this he always feels like kind of the first incarnation that sort of vaguely um, cares about something like being on goodish terms with the with Gallifrey, kind of vaguely. That that was I think that was sufficiently caveated. So yeah, I don't know. I I, I mean I like. And I think that this the, the society, as you say, it's it's very sort of sketched in shorthand. It's not like trying to do anything, you know, I super deep. But at the same time, you know, I don't know if this could have this society could have stretched to four episodes. But it's it's one of those that feels like it's at least a an interesting enough 
idea of a just as you mentioned earlier they're birds that's cool that's interesting don't try to do that on tv <laughs> looking at you web planet d- d- learn the lesson hey we are um, we are big fans no, of the web planet on this podcast i love <laughs> I, I i love the web planet i'm i i am taking the cheap joke um and and also as you say like on the one hand, you know, you couldn't imagine them trying this on TV, but also this era did do, try to do Kinda for all, and I love Kinda as well. So I'm always down for Doctor Who trying something that it really doesn't have the money to portray. That's why it's Doctor Who. Um, anyway, I'm rambling. I, I think that I don't have like a big thesis on Spring other than it's like a lot of bits that always feel interesting as I'm listening to them. Um, it, it never loses my attention, I think is the big thing. And like, while it has... It feels like just sort of a tasting menu of a bunch of little ideas that you could see if they'd really wanted to put the energy into it could have developed into maybe something a little bigger and more interesting and cohesive. As it is, I always come away with it with a smile on my face and thinking, oh, that's a clever twist at the end. Um, so, yeah, that, that's that's my general feeling of it is like I don't think it, it quite does anything big enough that I can point to and say this is a classic bit of short who. Um, but as it stands, I think it's just a lot of nice little clever bits all together. Yeah, I can... I think I already picture my brain what the two-hour version of the story would look like. It'd be a lot more exhausting, a lot of, like, there'd be some sort of evil alien who's, like, trying to run counter to the society, and then they'd be captured and escaping again, and it would just be... I think a lot of these stories would be much more exhausting, stretched out, because you'd have to, like, invent more conflicts to them. And I think what makes all of these stories kind of great is how low-key each conflict is. Like, like here, the solution is very uh it's dramatic in some aspects but kind of simple in others and i really like that it's just zero regenerates and he can sort of more fully integrate into society yeah which is you know fine that's okay yeah i i you know i don't have anything against that i think it's a perfectly reasonable conclusion to sort of come to at the end of this but it's not it's not like the big punch it's not a big twist it's not a and now the points kind of moment it's just kind of there and that's that's fine but that's okay it, it, it doesn't it doesn't deflate the story but i don't think that ending necessarily adds much to it as well especially since we have the illusion kind of earlier on about you know whether there's going to be like yeah time lord real politic or whether we're going to get into it, it none of that sort of comes to the surface at the end it's just like oh right he's regenerated which is pretty much all he wanted in the first place okay ah the theme tunes arrived that's fine. We get on to summer. I think summer is substantially stronger than spring, but you know, it gets us there. It's okay. Uh, final note about spring. Um, because I feel like we, we've probably exhausted what we have to say about this. Um, and yet at the same time, I know we could probably easily like talk for another three hours about just spring and then say, you know, we really should talk about any of the others. I know how these things go. Um, uh, just one thing I think, well, a couple of things I just want to call out that I think are, are, are interesting. Um, I do, I, I do love the gag about the doctor saying he can spot a TARDIS a mile off and Nissa immediately pointing out he couldn't spot the masters. And I generally yeah. enjoy, um, how this episode, um, just like leans on Trocken a lot. Like, I think that it's one of those things that like, it's such a big part of Nissa that, her father's body was stolen and then um, her planet was destroyed. And like that's such a massive bit of backstory that... Oh, and not only uh, was her father's body stolen, but then stolen by this mustache-twirling villain who continued to menace her time and time again after that. And, and obviously some of the subsequent stories deal with that more directly. But I like that uh, it feels like a general purpose of this overall uh, 
anthology is to at least address that to the extent that it's possible to. And I, and I like the ways both small and, you know, funny and poignant that they managed to do here. Um, and then the other thing that I just want to quickly ask, do, do we think the Doctor was off to try and induce Zero's regeneration at the end of the story? I can't figure out, like, what his goal was. This is getting a little in the weeds about the plot, but we know what Zero's plot was, which was to frame the Doctor um, into poisoning him with the the sticky resin or whatever and, and cause him to regenerate into a bird. I'm not 100% clear what the Doctor's plan there was, unless you really just have to take him as word. No, I was I totally knew what was going on and I was acting and, and so forth. So, um, But I'm always interested where it seems like, wait, was the Doctor really going to quote-unquote kill another time lord there hard to say <laughs> okay good do. as long as it's hard to say it's, it's yeah uh... yeah it's i don't know i how davison plays it it's sort of like you know covering his ass it's just <laughs> it but, really does seem that way yeah yeah i i can't quite interpret from that how much the doctor really knew yeah it, it i think that this is where maybe i'm just brushing up against the overall slightness of the story um but i've always found that uh, interesting. Anyway, I think we are, uh, I feel like we are desperate to move on to, to summer and it deserves the full attention. So I'm, I'm happy if, if, uh, my good hosts are, are ready to do so. Oh, I think we could probably move over to summer for now. Yes, for sure. So I think we've probably all tipped our hand here that we all have a fairly high regard for summer. I think it would be fair to say. Um, since we started with you, uh, Alistair last time, let's, uh, kick over to Kev this time. Kev, I don't think there's going to be any big spoilers here, but uh, how did you find Summer? Oh, uh, great. <laughs> that's really great. <laughs> okay, that's nice. So uh, moving on. No, no, please. Yeah, I mean, I want Alistair to talk more about this, but yeah, David Warner is so good in this story, and I think it's just such impressive how, how much this hinges on that one monologue he has about just, like, figuring out everything about the Doctor and Nyssa through coins and then looking at the TARDIS, and I think that is such a fantastic little thing. I could not really agree more. But um, Alistair, um, your own thoughts? Yeah, it's real good. It's <laughs> really, really good. Um, so I, I don't want to... I'm going to try to do this in, in stages. Um, but so, yeah, I mean, I guess the context, again, it's worth keeping in mind. This this did come out in January 2007. So what? So, that, I mean, this is one of those stories that kind of takes place in that interesting period where... The new series has started, but Big Finish can't really address it at all yet. Um, I forget. I guess this is post... Is this post Kingmaker? I guess that's the first one where they made any sort of references to it. But generally speaking, they're being subtle around um, around the new series. But I think that one of the things that the new series had done was establish that idea of, like, the celebrity historical and, um, you know, really putting front and center these... these uh, historical figures as the sort of celebrities of the story. And I love, first of all, that Summer makes Sir Isaac Newton inarguably the villain of the piece um <laughs> which is an amazing thing and then of course uh you get one of the all-time greatest voices one of the all-time greatest actors the one the only um david warner who's just phenomenal in this uh david warner you could make a ranking of just his best big finish performances like um and i mean i love his i've been listening to a lot of his unbound doctor lately and i i really love his portrayal of that as well this is in a very very different direction um but i think like it is just it's such an amazing and i think really in in the entire doctor who mythos unique way of paying 
respect to the brilliance of a character. Like, I, I mean, I guess actually I say unique. I mean, I know like say the Shakespeare code had Shakespeare working out that they're time travelers, but this, you know, that always felt like it was so, uh, like, like that portrayal always felt like they were just like, it was a very modern take on who Shakespeare would be, where it was very filtered through sort of our modern understanding of celebrity and genius and all of that. This really feels like they're trying to really respect who Isaac Newton was in the context of his times, in the context of the thought of the time. There's a lot of, you know, very uh, tricky uh, religious politics that are played out here. And then just to see Isaac Newton go, as you mentioned, and work out literally everything about the next 500 years of Earth's history, including from our perspective, the things that haven't happened yet, like the Dalek invasion of Earth. I, I just, it, it blew me away when I first listened to it. it. It still blows me away every time I hear it. I just, it's so brilliant. And it is given to an actor of David Warner's ability who can absolutely play it just perfectly. I, I, it is one of my, it's one of my all time favorite things Big Finish has ever done is their portrayal of Newton here. Okay. I think that makes it relatively clear. Yep. <laughs> um, yeah. No, I, 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 I mean, there's not really a word of that that I would disagree with. Um, I definitely want to pile on the, the David Warner praise. David Warner is one of my absolute heroes and uh, the way that he works with Big Finish is utterly extraordinary. I've mentioned in the podcast before, about how much I love uh, the Big Finish Sapphire and Steel adventures, which basically no longer exist. They've been deleted from the website. The only way that you can acquire them now is, is through um, less than legal means, shall we say. Uh, it, it, but they, he's so unbelievably amazing as, as Steel and Sapphire and Steel. And if you get the chance to listen to them, I, I sort of cannot recommend them highly enough. Um, of course, he's done many roles across Big Finish and, and whatever. He's, he's beyond brilliant. The thing I would say, I think, most about Summer is um, I think this is a story that I would probably give 10 out of 10 to if I had to rank. I don't generally rank things, but if I had to, I would give it 10 out of 10. And I still think this is the second best story on this four episode or four story box set. It's, it's one of those things that I just everything about everything about Summer is 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 perfect. I, I love the intelligence that's given to Isaac Newton. And I love the way that they're happy to have his intelligence be from like a 17th century perspective, not a 21st century perspective. It's interesting, Alistair, that you mentioned the Shakespeare Code because, of course, the other big difference between um, this and the Shakespeare Code is that this is good. And that's one of the <laughs> that's one of the things that this that the play gets right is that it understands how to how to make a character alive and vivid and real and and really personal, and it can do it from a perspective of a few centuries ago. It doesn't need to kid on that it's some you know contemporary interpretation or some reworking or whatever. It allows him kind of the dignity and the intelligence to be able to work things out from his own perspective, and that's such a key element to why Newton works so well here. Yeah, and I and I want to just uh, when we were first uh, discussing um, Kevin and I, like which which one we were going to do for this story uh, or do for this episode, and I, I said circular time because this one listening to the story changed the direction of my life, um, and that's like not a uh, that's not an exaggeration, um, and I'll try to make this relatively brief because it is a tangent, but. I think it kind of keys in on a point that you were making, uh, which is that it really, it's so situated in Newton's own life. And I think it's worth pointing out that this is not about Newton, you know, the 
the professor working on calculus or whatever. This is about a relatively obscure portion of Newton's life uh, where he's the warden of the Royal Mint, um, which is 100% true. That's an actual thing that happened. They're not making that up at all. And the way, the vividness with which they wrote about Newton in this story as, you know, disguising himself and fighting crime as the as the warden of the Royal Mint, it was... It was so fascinating to me when I first heard it that I wanted to learn more about it. Uh, and I discovered that, A, that this was completely true, and B, there's a really, really great book about it um, called Newton and the Counterfeiter, The Unknown Detective Career of the World's Greatest Scientist by Thomas Levinson, which I would highly recommend to everyone. And basically from that, I discovered that there are actual, like Thomas Levinson, he's a professor of, of uh, science writing at MIT, and, and that was, and that led me through some further um, uh, ver various machinations to end up t getting a master's degree in science journalism at the University of North Carolina, and just generally made it, made me aware that that was a thing that I could do, um, and so, like, it completely at a time where I was somewhat directionless in life, like, listening to the story, and then, and then it, it, it led me down a very strange Rube Goldberg-like contraption that ended up really redirecting the course of my life. But again, I, I don't know whether I would have done that if I can bring this back to the story as opposed to about me, which, you know, I'm loath to do, but, but you know, needs must. I think, again, it is because this story is so curious and interested in Newton himself, not our idea of Newton, that it is really engaging with Newton, the historical person, and taking that seriously, that it made me think, oh, maybe there's something about this that's worth researching further and looking into. And obviously then that, that led somewhere very interesting and beautiful for me. But yeah, so I just, I think that, again, to, to put a, tie the knot on that or tie the bow on that, I think it is just amazing how good this is in making Newton come alive, as you say, in a way that is totally true to him as he was in the 17th century. Yeah, it's such a marked difference from, I mean, Shakespeare fighting witches or Charles Dickens with ghosts on Christmas. It's like... It really does, and in taking it seriously, it really makes a much more rich and interesting character, not just this, like, like taking the celebrity almost out of celebrity historical. Yeah. And really focusing him. And it's, and I, like, we alluded to it earlier, but specifically I love how he is such a religious man through and through. It, that's never shaken or disabused of him. He, it never, he's never brought to be a more modern thinker. He is always like he is still using the word alchemy by the end of the story as if it's like a real thing that can happen <laughs> and i mean that's or it could potentially happen anyways that's just like that's a good attention to detail and that's really that's what really makes the story work on such a small level on such a larger level well i think the other thing about this story that's worth mentioning is that there's no plot the only, yeah. the only the only story no. that exists here is the doctor and nissa have to escape from a cell that's it. That's the only story we have here. So this play gives itself over 100% to kind of this character exploration and in a way that we almost never get, either from the TV show or really from Big Finish itself either. It's not something that happens. We just take a chunk of time, half an hour, 40 minutes, and we drill down into the essence of a character. That's such an unusual thing for Doctor Who to do, and it's even more unusual for it to do it for somebody who isn't a regular character. Just a couple of weeks ago, um, we covered um, Tegan's big return 
to Big Finish. And we sort of went over the way that uh, the story functioned as a, a way of doing something with the character um, that sort of went, you know, way beyond what the TV show did with her and sort of tried to track her life after she came back to Earth and all the rest of it. And it, it drills down into her and it's a good story and Janet Fielding is absolutely phenomenal in it. But it's about a regular character and it's one of those things that you know we expect big finish to take the time and explore these characters that's in some ways that's kind of almost what big finish is there for at this point in its history we don't expect them to do it for a character like uh, isaac newton and we certainly don't expect celebrity historicals to be presented to us in this fashion so the fact that it's able to be so profoundly honest i think to the character of Isaac Newton and it's not prepared to shy away from the slightly uncomfortable reality particularly things like when he has his like his fit towards the end of the story where he completely kind of you know loses all sense of reality around him he he passes out he's gone for you know hours at a time he's almost sort of screaming and hysterical you know again like realistic character things that, that you know that Newton was like that that's not an unfair portrayal of the character he suffered from those kind of fits and it's not glossing over or you know excusing or trying to justify it it's just presenting those aspects of the character as as an honest sort of portrayal of who the man was and in being able to do that not only do they manage to accurately um breathe life and, and and interest into what could otherwise be a sort of relatively dry analysis of, of a historical character. But far more importantly than that, they've brought Alistair into our world. And for that alone, surely we must all be grateful. Oh, absolutely. Um, I, I, yeah, I mean, I, I don't know whether this one led me to down the path of podcasting, but hey, you know, we're all some of our memories and all that. I, the other thing that I will say, you know, one of the things that I was just thinking about that I really love i mean okay so first of all just the fact that again i i don't think we can i think we've sort of mentioned this vaguely but i just want to say this really specifically and out loud because it's just one of my it's so brilliant is literally isaac newton starts with a euro coin uh a, a specifically an irish euro coin and works out multiple centuries worth of history from that what is it, uh, a couple of um, pound coins and one coin from what I think is, de it definitely sounds like it's from the kind of like uh, Guardian of the Solar System era around like Dalek's Master Plan, like the year 4000 or whatever. But um, it, it is, that's it. And he figures out literally everything from that. And as you mentioned, the TARDIS as well, the time travelers thing, like it just, and like, again, one of the things I really like about, about what they do here that's really smart, and I don't necessarily know whether we see it in too many other instances, is they treat the Dalek invasion of Earth in the 22nd century as another historical event, in this case a future historical event, that is as much a part of Earth's story as Irish independence, as the two world wars, as any of these other things that Newton intuits. Um, from looking at these coins, which is a really cool way of portraying it. And since we've already had, I mean, the Shakespeare Code has caught a lot of strays in this conversation. The Unquiet Dead caught one. Um, Unicorn and the Wasp, it's your turn now, too. Um, like, unlike the idea of <laughs> uh, Agatha Christie is still going to be read five billion years in the future, which is just silly, um, the end of the story is is the doctor telling Newton 
you will be remembered for 500 years and then human civilization is going to go through this awful cataclysmic reset because of this invasion and your story may not necessarily be remembered beyond that and newton says like that's what convinces newton that the doctor is not deceiving him um which is very poignant and sad and i remember f- feeling weirdly I, I always feel weirdly dissatisfied with that because like no no newton would surely be remembered beyond that and maybe he would but I, I don't know. I just like I, I love how it treats everything seriously and in its own way, like it's not just treating that future, the invasion, which is a key part of the overall sort of Doctor Who future history. It's just taking that seriously as history as well. And, and to some degree, like saying, yeah, that would be completely cataclysmic and, and nothing would ever really be the same after all of that. And so I just, you know, that, that it's it sort of I think inevitably, even though we're dealing with a Time Lord and a Trachonite, like, you can't really break the feeling that these are all vaguely from the perspective of someone from around our contemporary human time period. And this actually manages to kind of cut away from that and cut through that. So I just think it's a really, really smart story in its portrayal of, of all of it, to be honest. It's it's really, really smart in, in how it, it deals with all these elements and then makes them sort of work together to, to make this larger story work. I mean, yeah, it's that's so impressive, like, how it manages to pull that sort of drama at it from underneath it. And what's well, that sort of, I guess, the sort of poignant tone that the next two stories really run with? I think that's such a great sort of... It's sort of great tonal trick of this whole anthology is how it gets a little bit more... Not even more dramatic, just more melancholic as it goes along. Yeah. And I think that last sort of scene is a great step in that direction. And... And as much as that seems like a great step of talking to Autumn, I do want to talk about one last thing in this story, and that is our other three characters, the guard, the cook, and the jailer, who are just, you know, delightful. I, I just wanted to shout them out. They have a lot of very funny bits. Yeah, it's it always feels like, I mean, that's one where, as I think as you mentioned, uh, as mentioned earlier, not really a, an episode with a lot of story to it. Um, and so I always feel like it seemed very appropriate to basically just borrow the guard characters from the jail episode of Black Adder 2. Like that always feels like what they're doing here. And, and definitely a not the last time that, that I, I do like that Big Finish's standing opinion seems to be that the sort of Black Adder understanding of history is basically their understanding of history when it comes to peasants. I think that's definitely the Kingmaker. The Stockbridge trilogy is is that it's 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 I mean, it's it's Python, too. I mean, it's a long tradition of sort of comedy historical British characters. But yeah, that's one where it, it, they're very familiar archetypes uh, it, to my, when I, whenever I listen and, and I think that they're, they're a fun little bit of comic relief as well. So yeah, I, I enjoy, uh, they're, they're minor parts, but a, a nice part of that overall part of it. And I think this is a story that probably can use the occasional jokes because uh, uh, this is not, David Warner can be funny. I mean, he's terrifying, uh, always, but he's sometimes a funny kind of terrifying. He's just a terrifying kind of terrifying here. So, um, it's, uh, so it's appreciated that they bring some humor here as well. Yeah. I can't really disagree with all that. I, I want to go back even further. I want to, I want to say, uh, the idea of kind of the jailer and characters like that are very kind of Shakespearean, especially if you think of like the drunk jailer in Macbeth or something like that, you know, you say there's a long, a long tradition in, in sort of, uh, English history. Yeah. I, I really think that there is, I think it goes back a very, very long way, but yeah, I, I also sort of agree with Kev. I think these are, are characters that deserve to get shouted out because one of the nice things about having a historical sort of story which is set like this and especially one which is so focused on kind of its lead character is that often when we get 
like celebrity historicals or whatever we want to call them, like the the if you'll excuse the very heavy inverted commas here, that little people do tend to get rather swamped out. So just having like working class characters, people who want to get on with their job, who aren't tied up in grand arcs of history and deducing the entire history of humanity for the next thousand years from a handful of coins, you know. Some guy just wants a supper. Some wife just wants to know where her plate is. That's all that they have. And I think it's really important to sort of... It, it, it's not that those characters are, are menial or, or kind of less important. It's the exact opposite. It's important to remember from a historical perspective that it's not just about, like, especially like sort of great man of history theory, which I know is very debunked now, but also as, as we uh, in contemporary times uh, see the rise of the right and the rise of kind of that way of viewing history, it's so important to have those small characters who, who sort of, you know, relate the, the whole story back to something which is more than just great sweeping arcs of history or the great arc of justice or, or whatever you want to call it. They're people who have got lives to get on with and they're great performances, but they do perform, I think, more than just, you know, a little bit of sort of casual humour within the play. They do remind us that there are other historical perspectives which are equally important. I appreciate how gently you completely owned me there by pointing out that this is uh, this goes back to Shakespeare, not just eighties Britcoms. I, really, I, I appreciate I appreciate how kind you were about that. I don't no, know that if was I not it, my but, intention uh, at all. I no, promise you. But I no no I, I think it's no I think it's a really good point. I think like it, it's something where um, that I think you're you're pointing out something that I I'd never quite articulated is missing from a lot of Doctor Who's uh, the new series' historical episodes. Um, I'd have to do a full inventory, but certainly any of the ones with the sort of real historical figure, I think you're right that they do tend to lose the little people. They are definitely very great man of history or, or great woman of history in, in certain cases uh, kind of stories. And I think that that is something that, that Shakespeare definitely seemed to understand that value of the, I mean, to, to go even further back, I guess, kind of by definition, that sort of Greek chorus aspect sometimes of the uh, lower class characters or, or just to, to use them as a sort of side commentary on the piece. And I think the Big Finish tends to be much uh, more aware of the, the storytelling potential of that um, and I think it's one of the things that tends to make the historical stories very good and uh, so yeah I think that that's a it's a good point that that it is both a I, I, I do think you're definitely met I think there's plenty of comic relief to be had from these characters but I think you're also a hundred percent right um, that they, they add some really good texture and some commentary from this and, and make this they make the world, as you say, feel more complete than just if it were just Isaac Newton. Um, you know, I mean, even just the, even just the little detail of, of Newton always sending the guards away when he's having his conversations with the Doctor and Nyssa because he knows there are things that they can't hear for his own safety to some degree. Um, so it's it's a it's really really smart and well done, even beyond just yeah. So yeah, uh, I appreciate the, the the larger context there. I think that's worth pointing out. Yeah, I think it's a good time to move on to Autumn, given how much we've given to the first half of the story. <laughs> yeah. And yeah, uh, we still have two amazing stories left to get to. Uh, Autumn, I also really like this story. I really love the ideas of, like, a companion sort of... The companions, especially in Classic Who, especially in Classic Who, get so little, like, introspection, I feel. And you occasionally have some standout stuff, but... It feels like, and especially with the character like Nissa, especially, and also like the no hugging, no kissing era, and things like you can never have a story like this on TV. You can never flesh out Nissa's character in this way to give her this sort of romance and to 
even more important than that, give her this sort of introspection about her history and what her goals are, what her ideas are. And I think this is such a lovely story in accomplishing all of that. I think one of the things that I admire about the way that Big Finish use Nissa's character is that they never kind of back down from the way that they sort of portray Nissa. And I think, um, I think Autumn is a very good example of this. So we get her sort of really, I guess, having her first romance. She definitely seems to have her first sexual encounter here. And there's a real sense that the development which has been given to Nyssa is, is a, a fundamental core part of the character. But obviously one, like you say, Kev, that we've never had sort of portrayed on TV. And Big Finish keep doing this with Nyssa. They keep pushing her forward. And I think, like, we, we've... Again, we've sort of commented before in the podcast about the way that they've reclaimed Mel and Mel has become a great character and Bonnie Langford has been redeemed and whatever. But there's something about the way that they use Nyssa that they never stop pushing her. Like, I'm not going to go into any great details because we tend to stick sort of, you know, sort of relatively to our, our contemporaneous reviews in terms of um, sort of spoilers and what we cover. But, you know, obviously it's well known that... Um, in the future, Big Finish will have a few audios where we have a, a post-terminus Nyssa and, and we explore what happens to her there. And this kind of feels, the way that Autumn is, is written and developed, like the start of that process, at the start of the process of, of using Nyssa's character and just constantly driving forward for it. Even when we have, like I say, this is you know obviously you know a, a big moment in her life, the way that she's growing up, the way that she's developing. And they just keep doing it. And I think it I think one of the reasons that they're able to keep doing it in the future is because of the strength of the, the writing and the characterization here. I think if Autumn had just been even if it had just been as good as Spring, which as we said is, you know, it's still a great story, even if it's the, the most minor of the four here, even if that had been as the best that Autumn had managed, I don't know that you could have based all the future developments of, of Nissa's character on it. But the writing here is so strong. It's so well developed for, for Nissa's character and the, the relationship she has here that you can, it's a springboard that all of her future characterization can work off. I adore what is done with Nissa here. I love this story too. I will just second everything you have to say about Nissa and maybe as we get into more of the details we can, but in terms of the overview, I think the other thing that I, I want to say here is uh, the the tone of this story like it does it has such a it really does have such a beautifully autumnal tone to it um and maybe that's i feel that even more strongly listening to it now as new york is going through the sort of two weeks of the year that pass for an autumn before the weather completely crashes out into the cold of winter um it's an amazing city i don't know why anyone wouldn't want to live here um but in any <laughs> event um it like it it does have that feeling and I love their use of narration in this story. Um, both the Doctor and Nyssa at times are addressing nobody obvious in particular. So I think it is kind of just, it's narration basically. Um, of that feeling of there is something is dying. Um, and it's not happened yet. But the days are getting shorter. Things are getting colder. Um, a little bit of magic is going out of the world. But also there is this sort of space for these sort of, uh, I mean, for this, for something like that kind of romance. Um, and I think it's, it's fascinating and very sad uh, to see a story that is about the doctor losing things and things that have mattered so much to him, both his 
annual appearance uh, to play for the Stockbridge cricket team, but also um, potentially Nissa is someone that he is losing over the course of the story. And then Nissa, all the things that she's gaining, but the question of is it actually possible to hang on to these things? Is she ready to sort of make that leap and, and move out of, you know, this is where the the anthology starts really pushing that idea of the, the title concept of that circular time versus linear time. She's not ready to, she's not ready to step out into the world of linear time just yet. Um, even though it's a beautiful, it's a beautiful tease of what that life might be. Um, it, it, again, it's a very, we mentioned the melancholic nature of summer, um, at least in the, in the form of Newton himself. Um, here it's really it's really laid on thick and it is a it's a very sad story in a really beautiful way so i yeah this is one that really really stays with me i mean yeah it's it's such like a well-constructed story and like the romance is sort of the center of it and it's i think it's easy to mistake that as sort of the biggest aspect of the story because it's like a lot of firsts for nissa as she points out it's this uh thing that could not be done on TV that is sort of retroactively get to be done. But I think more importantly than that, it's about, like you said, the sort of relationship between this and the doctor sort of coming apart. Like, I think if anything that sort of backs up that sort of claim from earlier that it's about different parts of their friendship, you really do feel like Terminus could happen like three stories from now or however yeah. much it was like after Arc Infinity. It was just like they've been growing apart and Nissa clearly is torn, like, very clearly torn between wanting to stay and leave. And that's not a place she would be in in a lot of other stories we've listened to with her in it. I love the way that they both kind of try and pass the buck to the other one, as it were. You know, Nyssa constantly says, oh, well, Doctor, no, no, if you think we've got to leave, we've got to leave. And the Doctor's like, oh, well, no, if you want to go to the ball, then, you know, you must go to the ball and all the rest of it. And the way that neither of them can quite find the honesty to express what it is that they want to do, I think is one of the things that really makes the relationship feel real and feel alive. Like there's there's a lot of texture and detail to the way, like I know Stockbridge, for example, I went to university very, very near Stockbridge in, in Winchester. So I know that area, I know the cricket pitches, I know the way that the sun goes down, like all that stuff, that's, that's, that's how I, um, no, it's not how I grew up, but it's how I was in my sort of late teens, early 20s when I was at university. So all that stuff I know to be true, all that stuff feels absolutely real and lived in and, and sort of genuine. And that still feels like the most irrelevant part of the story, which is not to say that it's bad. It's not. It's brilliant. It's just that the emotional honesty, I think, that exists between the Doctor and, and Nyssa here is obviously that's the, the core of the play. But it is that haltingness, that, that inability to actually tell somebody what it is that you want to do, how you feel, what it is that's happening here. All those things, even the Doctor who, who suddenly has to kind of admit that, you know, in parallel with the fact that he might be losing Nyssa, that, like the, the pleasure that he took from being able to turn up and just play cricket is, is going and it's going because you've got like this boorish racist or because, you know, things have become a little bit more uncouth or a little bit more uncivilized as he sees it. Things like that, you know, profoundly affect the way that he interprets 
what's happening to him and the fact that that is parallel with the way that he can feel Nyssa slipping away that she's developing in ways that he simply does not know how to react to and indeed he admits that out loud he says he doesn't know how to react to that uh, it, it just feels so emotionally honest and grounded in these characters and for me that's the absolute triumph of this play yeah i think that you know it's been mentioned that this is doing something that the classic series could never have done as you mentioned the no touching no kissing kind of rules and and just in general not being terribly interested in you know broadly speaking I, I think that this can sometimes be overstated but broadly speaking not being terribly interested in the companions inner lives uh, and certainly Nissa I think is is a companion that, that was true of on the in the TV series um, but honestly I'm not even sure whether the new series has ever done anything quite I don't know whether it's quite this daring, but but certainly quite this, and, and it's part of it's an issue of format, but I don't know whether, I don't know whether the, the new series has ever quite invested in the notion of a companion's romance without immediately tying it to the kind of, is it possible to actually have a romance with the Doctor question, which the new series has obviously marched right up to several times and never been quite willing to... Um, to answer one way or the other. I mean, I guess maybe the closest would be maybe what they were doing with Clara and Danny in Series 8. I don't know. I'd have to think more on this. But I definitely think this idea of, like, this sort of one-off idea of actually seeing what would happen if a companion started to fall in love with somebody and it is, uh, it is neither a sort of obvious plot contrivance to get them off, <laughs> get them off the show or a kind of passing infatuation it, it really is something that is both it's both real but also not destiny it's real but not destiny um to put it more grammatically correct um that's a really in i think that's a really interesting place for the for doctor who to go and it's gone there very very rarely in any of its incarnations um and as you say that then to have a doctor in this incarnation who is perhaps in some respects, the least equipped to deal with that based on every part of his characterization ever. It's, it's really, it's really powerful. And I think, you, as you mentioned, that just this doctor not being able to articulate, um, like having the emotional vulnerability to at least be clear that this affects him, but still not necessarily being able to articulate well what about it affects him. It's a, it's a really... I think these are exactly the right. The, this is exactly the right companion and the right doctor to tell this story with. And I'm, and as I say, I really don't know whether we've really ever seen this story told anywhere else. So, um, you know, even as even as the show is in theory opened up what it can do, it it still feels unique, and that's really cool. Yeah, I feel like the closest we've come on TV is uh, Clara and Danny, which has its own like dozens of extra plot contrivances on top of it. So, but otherwise, yeah, romance has never really been taking that seriously on doctor who which yeah yeah it's so nice to have this story uh you're talking about the doctor not articulating what he feels and i think that is that's such a great scene where he like points out nissa's dressing like the time contemporaneously and you can tell it bothers him in some way but there's something in davidson's performance that conveys that even he's not sure why it bothers him even he's like some he just knows something is off but in something a way he doesn't quite feel comfortable with but even he doesn't know why he's uncomfortable and so he can't like you said articulate it i find that such a complex and interesting thing that dr doctor is so ill-equipped he just sort of lets it play out on its own 
and it does, but it's also almost widens this gulf between them that he can't really be there and relate to her when she's going through this time. I think one of the things that I'd also like to mention here is that we've we've sort of talked a lot about the way that the characters are developed, the way that their sort of relationships are sort of emotionally honest and emotionally open, but we haven't really talked directly about the performances. And I want to sort of particularly call out um, Peter Davison here because this is such... I think an extraordinary performance for here. I completely agree with what you said there, Kev, about the way that he kind of finds a space within the Doctor to to articulate the way that he doesn't quite understand why this unsettles him, even although it clearly does. I think Davis's performance here is sort of beyond magnificent. And it's like... There's no Doctor in the Big Finish range that can't turn in a brilliant performance. They've all turned in classics. But this is, thing for some reason... I don't know that um, Circular Time is really called out as being one of Davison's, you know, great performances. It tends to be things like Spare Parts or whatever. And I'm not going to dispute the, the brilliance of, of the performance there. But he is so amazing. And the detail in his performance is so kind of well-regulated. Like, everything that an actor could do to kind of bring the script alive, I think he does. And he is met every inch of the way by by Sarah Sutton and you know like Sarah Sutton is particularly as far as her uh, TV performances uh, is concerned she's not the most well regarded kind of actor but I think given this kind of script given this kind of relationship that she has both well, not just with the doctor but I think with everybody that she encounters here as, as well of course as her big romance the, 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 the quality that Sarah Sutton is able to bring to Nyssa whilst not doing anything that deviates away from kind of the character as sort of established as we're familiar with. I think she does an astonishing performance here. And and just that, those two actors together, it just feels like you could give them anything and they would be able to deliver on it. I think that I'm going to co-sign all, all of that. Uh you're completely right, and I'm really glad that you were able to speak to that so eloquently because I don't know whether I would be able to quite as well. I, I think that the, the thing that I would add here is because I think you talk about, you're sort of broaching that kind of larger question of, I think, how we talk about the, the different performances and all of, of the doctors and all of that. And I think that what is always why I connected to, to Davison's doctor from the start uh, why he has always been one of my absolute favorite doctors is I think that he has so much depth to his performances. I think that he is, of all the doctors, of certainly of the classic doctors, the best at playing performances that are primarily minor notes. Um, I think that he is the one who can who can convey a lot without necessarily doing a lot. And I think sometimes the TV series definitely ran too far with that and made him just a sort of ineffectual character that was a general that was a that was a mistake of the tv series um i think that the the new the new series doctor i think who is obvious who most obviously rivals him in this in this capacity is peter capaldi as the 12th doctor i think that that's a similar kind of thing where he can do a lot with very tiny movements of his face and so forth and um longtime fans of of my podcast being doctor who will not be shot i managed to crowbar in unnecessary peter capaldi praise into a conversation but um I, I think, though, that, like, that to me is what makes, that's what sets apart Davison performances from the other Big Finish Doctors, who, as you say, are all brilliant in their own ways. But 
I think that this is a story that is so perfectly suited to what he brings to the Doctor, being able to, um, it's as much in what he's not saying, which is a real skill in audio, to convey things through what you're not saying. Um, but I think that he's capable of doing that, and I think that like that's, to my mind, what always makes his Doctor feel so singular uh, among all of them, and feels so human and so vulnerable, and and yet in his sort of ongoing befuddlement with more human emotions like it's it's that to me is one of the the central dynamics one of the central conflicts of of who the 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 fifth doctor is as a character which is actually something that to start teasing it is something that i think winter also alludes to in a few key points as they're trying to sum up who this particular incarnation is um but yeah i think that that is something that is i've always loved about davison's understanding of who his doctor is and i think that it is so essential to what makes autumn special um i've talked so much about it makes autumn special i have to give my one major complaint with the story i think andrew is such a drip <laughs> i do not <laughs> like him at all <laughs> and uh it's it's a shame because i think this could have been like one of my all-time favorite doctor who stories if he wasn't kind of obnoxious to me i think he's like a really pushy guy. I think there's just not much going on with him. He is bordering on being a himbo, for lack of a better term. He's just... I I don't know. I mean, he sounds like he's attractive, and I'm glad Nissa, like seems attracted to him, but there's... He just talks about how, oh, I don't think about consequences, and also the guy thing is just so outdated. <laughs> Even for 2007, it's just... Yeah, nothing about him connects for me and i don't that's the big stumbling block in me buying this romance and that first kiss always feels a little forced and after that first kiss it goes a lot more smoother but yeah i think i don't know he just doesn't seem sued for nissa at all i mean i don't think that's an unfair criticism but i i think the story is strong enough that it can kind of get away with it i don't think it i don't think it particularly undermines the story i think the the kind of the the thing that I think I have the biggest problem with is that we are asked to sympathize with a dead racist at the end of it and that's a bit yeah, weird. Yeah, that's weird too. That's, I, I, I'm, I'm really, really interested in, in, in both of your takes in this because like, that's a very, that's a very flippant way of putting it, but that's also what it is, right? It's just like, this guy kind of, you know, you know, he's openly racist. You know, he starts to joke about two Arabs walking into a pub and, you know, those types. And, and I didn't realize you spoke Eurolingo and all this kind of stuff. He's, you know, he's explicitly racist. And then he dies trying to win this game for the club. And then we're all supposed to go, ah, so that's all right then. So I'm, I'm like really curious to, to what your take is on this because I, 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 I don't quite get what that's going for. Uh, so I'll, I'll go first just because I think there's a couple, both of these points are worth responding to and I think they're both uh, extremely valid criticisms. I don't really have, uh, I'm not going to, I'm not going to say I disagree with either of them. I think that they're, they're valid. Um, I think on the topic of Andrew, I, 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 this is maybe a cop out, but I do feel like these sort of like one-off romance characters, I just, they're really hard to write well. I feel like they're almost always drips um, and I think maybe it's just sort of a limitation of the form uh that i i know there are examples of it done well so that's really no excuse but i feel like he kind of serves the purpose he needs to which is a character that it is that kind of like oh well first they hate each other now they love each other kind of thing uh as the the exploding robots in that one simpsons episode once uh observed so um that was a 
deep cut reference. Um, but in any event, I, I, I it kind of worked for me in and of itself. Like I feel like the part where just the the idea that like Nissa would be so feel so so strongly for him that she would want to potentially stay. It, it, it kind of like it, it sort of made sense to me just in the sense of like it kind of just felt like this was as much like you know first loves are sometimes weird and imperfect and and as much as anything, i don't know it, it sort of it worked for me in in general even if i think in specific i think that's a fair point that andrew doesn't do a ton for me other than that um as for the other part yeah um i will just generally first of all say um it's not it is it is a uh, poignant is one word I'll put for it or just hard to listen to a story recorded in 2007 and be reminded of oh okay yeah all these issues that are obviously um it feels very contemporary let me put it like that the 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 small town racism is uh feels like yep that that hasn't gone away if anything that is now largely shaping uh current British politics um so um I think that (sighs) the best I can say for it is I think that there is sort of a general sense of like things are still being lost and that this is messy and that it doesn't feel like necessarily, I'm trying to remember the exact way they handle it at the end. I guess the doctor is the one who says, well, you know, he did score, so we should update the thing. And that's what he died for and, and all of that. And like they are, I don't know. I think that this is one of those things where maybe this is worth acknowledging that this is an area where Doctor Who does tend to be written not by not by people who agree with uh, the character of Don, but with people who are maybe a little too willing to extend unnecessary sympathy and forgiveness to characters like Don than they than they should be. I think is maybe a point that is worth acknowledging, um, and that 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 is maybe something where autumn is a little too willing to say, well, in, in death, there is redemption or something like that then is maybe valid. Um, and that is a somewhat mealy mouthed way of, of broaching this. Cause I think it's a complex topic and I am trying to speak about this off the cuff, but yeah, I, th- I think that this is one of those things where the, 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 the sadness of just anyone dying um, and the way that that's handled maybe made me forget or, or it sort of took enough of the edge off, and maybe that's just also my own blind spots that I'm also, like, just, it can be a little easier to, in the moment, allow myself to kind of go along with it than maybe I should. I don't know. I, I think that that's a fair point, though, that it's, it is a, uh, it's a weird set of choices, that part at the end there. My take on the Dawn stuff is, uh, it's sort of two facets of the same idea, which is this thing of, like, time coming to an end, and things have to things change and you have to adapt to the change and accept it. And the two things that are changing are uh, small towns are getting more racist or openly racist, I should say. And uh, people die and leave like a complicated legacy and conflating those two ideas to the same character is clumsy. (laughs) Incredibly. Yep. But I think that's sort of what Cornell is going for with him. Thank you. That I think that says it better than thank you. That's a much better way of putting it than I was. That's what I was trying to get at, and I think that that's exactly right. And I think um, the I, I think there's also an interesting idea that I, I don't think I, I do think occurs to the, the the episode. I don't think it's something that the episode like sometimes episodes kind of lose control of their own themes and and put in things that they don't realize are there. I think they re- I think this story does recognize. That it's not necessarily, as you say, it's not 
that they're becoming more racist. It's maybe in some level the doctor is not able to ignore these uncomfortable things as well as he was able to in the past. And, and, and it's, and that's a kind of interesting point. Cause on the one hand, like the doctor never tolerates it for even a second. Yeah. Like there, there's no question of that, but, but there is sort of that notion of, well, surely um, Stockbridge was not a utopia when you were coming here in the fifties or the forties or the thirties or the twenties. Like you, like, is this just because you were more able to deal with it when no one was saying any of these things out loud? And what does that say about the doctor? And I, uh, I think that the episode is, is cognizant of that, but it doesn't explore it. Um, so I, I think that you're right, that I think that this is all part of this larger idea of, of death, decay, and, and things coming to an end. And I think you're probably right that Autumn... If it makes a, it, it does make a mistake. I'm not going to put the conditional on there. I think that its great flaw is that it overstretches and tries to cram together too many things. I think that there is a, a better ending that is probably more about the Doctor recognizing that it's his idea of Stockbridge has died and now he needs to move forward with that. Not this particular racist has died because that forces the vaguely repentant racist to who isn't really repentant about any of the specific awful things he said just that he was a bit of an idiot which is is too much of a that that's a real you know light way of letting yourself off the hook there um that that he his death means that stands in for the death of Stockbridge so yeah I think I think it was stretching for something that doesn't work well together and as you say I think it's clumsy I think that's a great place to sort of leave Autumn behind and go to our final story of the anthology, uh, Winter, which is uh, Cornell sort of doing his own extra take on the Fifth Doctor generation, sort of fan servicey explaining that vision Doctor has at the end, getting Chameleon into it. But at the same time, that feels like a recipe for disaster whenever you get too deep in the weeds of Doctor Who fan service. But it's really built on the solid foundation of a great, relationship of like this whole relationship that's been the backbone of this anthology it's still the doctor and nissa and them coming together one last time when i said earlier on that uh summer was my second favorite of the stories which are in this uh, release um this is my favorite one and i know it should probably be autumn but it isn't it's winter i cannot express how much i love this story and like, if you want to tell me that Autumn has better character work, I will agree with you. If you want to tell me that Summer has, uh, you know, more sort of interrogative approach to character, I will agree with you. If you want to tell me that Spring is sort of more lighthearted and fun, I will agree with you. But there is something about Winter that gets me. And I, I'm sure it's the, the long-term, you know, kind of fan since the day I was born part of it. Um, but I love the texture of the relationship again between Nissa and the Doctor and that kind of like even although they've parted, even although Nissa has settled down and married, the, the, the trust, the unquestioning trust and love that lies between these characters is absolutely kind of expressed and delivered on but it never requires like Nissa having a big you know I love you line. It doesn't require the doctor having to articulate it in that way. It's just absolutely in the in the writing. And I think, again, in a, a pair of utterly astonishing kind of performances here. But it's all contained within that. And I just love Winter. You know, I definitely thought you were talking about Autumn when you <laughs> said that Summer was your... And I think it's... And I think that this is... I think part of it is because Autumn is so much easier to sell 
why it would be great yeah. if that makes it like like yeah, autumn yeah. is like oh well it's this beautiful like melancholic character piece about the doctor and nissa growing apart like and you're like oh yeah i can see why that would be this stunningly beautiful thing whereas winter is what if we crowbarred a hallucination into the end of the regeneration in <laughs> caves of andrews like like it just it seems like it should be just the ultimate fan service and there is a more aggressive term for, for what you might call it um that exists in the doctor who fandom but it is i think that you're right i mean i think that it is one that it is something where it is a really really beautiful examination at the end of who the fifth doctor is uh, and what his relationship with Nyssa means. And I think that it is less about Nyssa because Nyssa feels like a more complete person at this point, which is kind of interesting as well that like spring, summer and autumn feel like that is about Nyssa growing up. And, and here, this is a very different part of her life. She's, she's married. She has a child. Um, and while I'm not going to say there's, there, there's no, it's not that there's no character development for Nyssa here. It does feel like you're, it does feel like a very different kind of Nyssa, and it's also one of those things that is interesting listening to now, knowing, as, as you alluded to earlier, that the big finish would ultimately bring a, a, an older Nyssa back into the, um, back into the fray and, and do quite a lot with her character uh, and keep pushing her forward. So um, it is, and, and then also, I will just say, this is one of the most creative ways that Big Finish has ever figured out how to write around the fact that uh, they they really can't use the Anthony Ainley master. Um, this is one of the... Uh, it's not the most creative write-around they ever came up with, um, but it is, it's a really good one and of making him the, the lurking, omnipresent en enemy of the story without ever having to bring him in directly and then obviously also finding a way to bring Chameleon of all characters into it, which I think at the time was really shocking that Big Finish managed to come up with Chameleon. Now... Big Finish is sort of part and parcel that you listen to them. They're going to bring back a character you never, ever, ever thought that they would find a way to revive. Um, but uh, it's it is. I don't know whether it's a shocking twist, but it was certainly quite a quite a surprise that they that Chameleon proved to be central to this story, and then and then obviously it, it trading in all the um, emotion that will sit within me forever whenever I think about the about really anything to do with Caves of Androzani. Um, but uh, yeah, it, I agree with you. Winter is a really, really beautiful. And I, I feel like it always, again, because it's so wrapped up in, in the fanishness stuff, it, it always, I always have to kind of roll over and remember, oh, no, 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 no. This is really beautiful and emotional. It's not just like a, a, a sort of wallowing in the lore for 30 minutes. It's something deeper and sadder than that. So yeah, I, I'm, I'm, I'm there with you. This is a beautiful one. Yeah, I mean, I also think it's like just very beautiful, I think. Like again, this gets so into the relationship of the Doctor and Nissa, and it's this nice goodbye. That aspect is my favorite. The fact that it is this final parting thing, especially because uh, their goodbye in Terminus is like all classic Who goodbyes, almost all I should say, uh, very brief and abrupt. <laughs> this feels like a it gives that closure that I really enjoy. It's I think it's just so sweet in that way. It really emphasizes how much of an important relationship the Doctor was in Nissa's life. And a relationship that is not easy to define beyond just, like, really good friends. And I think it just so gets to why that friendship works so well. Well, I think the creativity element of it is what... It's kind of the thing that pulls us in as fans. Of course, we're going to, you know... 
even if it's a disaster, we're, we can't help but be attracted to a story which is, you know, essentially set within about 15 seconds of the climax to, you know, arguably the best love story of all time. You know, that, how could that not be an attractive proposition to fans like us? That, that's just going to have the hook. But but just, again, the emotional punch. I, I, like, one of the things I love about this story is I think that it makes it really clear that Nyssa is ultimately a much more kind of emotionally intelligent character than than the doctor that she's gone out she's married she's got her life but she's so clearly developed as an individual it's not that things like marriage or settling down are sort of shown as being prima facie better than any other kind of lifestyle it's just that it's the one that works for her and there's such a a truthfulness about the way that that is written for Nissa, and again of course that Sarah Sutton is able to deliver on but she's seen as being so I think emotionally mature in a way that I don't think the Doctor comes across as. It's not exactly a criticism of the Doctor but it's a, a, an acknowledgement that to be somebody like the Doctor necessitates a different kind of perspective than to be somebody like Nyssa. That's not because he's a Time Lord, it's not because he's a Traveller, it's not because of any of those things but it does involve all aspects of those things. And I think the, the sort of emotional maturity and sort of emotional intelligence that Nessa has here, the way that she's able to guide the Doctor through what's happening here, I think that's beyond all the, 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 the sort of fan lore and the love and the characters and Chameleon and all those things. I think that's what I respond to most in this, this story. I just adore how well-written sort of Nessa is and how brilliantly Sarah Sutton is kind of able to bring that to life. Well, and I think this is where, you know, this is what the, the whole anthology is building to, right? That that distinction between circular and linear time and that this and that this is this is Nissa when she has become part of linear time. As you say, she is starting like its days are proceeding in the right order. Um, she is building a life with her husband and her child. And as you say, it's not that, that that is the end goal of all people or anything like that. It's just this is what has made sense for Nyssa. Um, and that the doctor is, it, he is circular. That And it's both that when he reaches the end of one part of his story, he he regenerates and becomes someone new all over again. And I, I don't know whether I'd quite, I'm sure I'd noticed before, but it, it was one of those little details that I'd forgotten the description of the watcher, um, like the cocoon of the many colored coat and all of that. And sort of basically the fifth doctor having a bit of an inkling that th this, the next one's going to be louder. The next one's going to be loud. Like I, I, I always appreciate those little, those little hints of the sort of vague sense of because five to six is obviously such a traumatic, uh, regeneration and such a jolt of one character type to the other. It's maybe the most sort of, it's it's maybe the biggest shift from one kind of doctor to another um though we can debate that um some other time when we're not an hour 25 into a podcast or wherever we are um but um and then, and then but yeah i i think that as you say like what you're what you're talking about there is that theme incarnate and also the part at the end where they're saying that while nissa knows that she did watch her doctor die there's also a part of her that knows whenever she's asked that the doctor her doctor is still out there and it's that sort of thing where like and, and it's obviously that sort of feels like it's making this larger point about um what doctor who is what big finish doctor who is which is this idea that like 
even the doctor in some strict sense is still subject to linear time that one, two, three, four, all the way up to 13 now. Like there is that sense of it is still a progression. And yet at the same time, the whole point of Big Finish is the fifth doctor era never ends. There's still more stories to be told in it. And you're still, and it's, it is circular. So there's, it's an interesting meta comment as well that it's not, it's not making that primarily, but it's, it, it adds, I think that, that knowledge of what Big Finish is at its core adds weight to that moment and it, it, it it's a really yeah it's really really clever how it um plays out what i think could be a very abstract theme and as you're talking about makes it feel very real and tangible uh in winter i think that's one of the great triumphs of this particular story yeah and i mean especially now that with the narration stories being introduced around this time that finally get first through fourth doctor stories into big finish and then now in the present day, we have recast Doctors. And even if Big Finish somehow stops producing stories, which may happen until the end of human civilization, uh, as long as there are humans around, there'll be fan fiction written and stuff like that. The Doctor will always exist, essentially. And that's the circular time. And that's kind of almost terrifying to think about how IP will outlive us. But at the same time, I don't know, it's nice that it's Doctor Who, at least. Well, absolutely, and one of the things I kind of admire here is that there is also um, a certain amount of restraint. I mean, like, uh, Alistair, you mentioned like how they managed to get around the, having the Master in it by just having this laugh and having um, the... the uh, presence of the master hanging over this but like it would have been so easy to have uh like a, a colin baker cameo here you know they've done it before they did it with the wormery for example where we get uh, sylvester mccoy basically tacked on the end of a, a colin baker story it would have been so easy for them to do that but they don't they they, they hold the focus on this central relationship. And I mean, ultimately, that's what this entire release is about. It's about that central relationship between Nyssa and, and the Doctor. And by not sort of tipping over into that indulgence, by not falling down the trap of, you know, everything has to be a reference, every box has to be ticked, but just allowing the, the focus and the emphasis to rest on the relationship, it's able to pull off this very, I don't want to say it's unique, but very rare kind of achievement of being able to do something which is so kind of into the long grass, into the weeds, but at the same time remain true to kind of the emotional core of it, the emotional honesty of it. That's such a such a rarity, and it's just something to be appreciated and admired. It's funny how, for whatever reason, uh, Sylvester McCoy is definitely the cameo doctor for Big Finish. Like, <laughs> all, of the, all of the little cameos are always his for some reason. Um, and I think that we've alluded to this also a few times and like um you know this that this does feel like it is of a different era of big finish and and uh and it is in some regards although this was also toward the start of of the kind of i think it's still basically the same regime that was in charge of this one is now in charge but obviously a lot of things have changed in terms of the licenses and what they can do and also which actors are willing like in theory if winter were made now you can imagine it being possible to get all the other companion actors in to re-record their lines from the finish and have them put in one-line cameos. You could imagine them deciding they want Colin Baker. They could even maybe do something around. I mean, now that the recasting uh, genie is fully out of the bottle, maybe uh, someone else doing uh, Anthony Ainley's master. And you could imagine that a winter made in 2019 would just maybe not be able to resist all those different siren songs, um, which is maybe a little bit of a pun given that sirens and all of the multi-doctor stories that have come out of that. But um, 
yeah, I, I think that like this, what is part of what's powerful about this is this is at a time where um, Fifth Doctor uh, stories for Big Finish had a lot of limitations on them. They only had uh, a couple companions that they had uh, regular access to in the form of, uh, as you mentioned, Nyssa and Perry and to a much lesser extent Turlo. And that they really have to, and it forces them the limitations in terms of what they were allowed to reference and which actors they had access to really keeps the story contained. And I would hope that they would they would have the same instincts if they were making a story like this now. But I'm really glad that it came out of this particular era where they, whatever their instincts were, they, they had those limitations placed on them. I think that it, it helps keep the focus so much more clearly on where it needs to be so yeah it's it but it's it's interesting reflecting on just how much big finish and our expectations of what kind of stories they're going to tell have evolved in the intervening 12 years and i think those limitations are so important because i mean without those limitations you don't get this relationship between the fifth doctor and nissa you don't get this sort of very close relationship because of all the stories they alone had together i mean look at big finish now i don't most of the time they just do they put Tegan or Turlo in the story as well with Nyssa and like they just had a chameleon trilogy and that's great that we get more Janet Fielding and Mark Strickson and uh, John Coleshaw doing a chameleon impression I suppose I haven't listened to those but um yeah I you did not it sort of means that this relationship wouldn't exist if they could just do that from the beginning I think this relationship is so important to like now Doctor Who canon and metafiction or whatever you want to call it, it's such a foundational part of the fifth Doctor. And I'm so glad they had these sort of barriers in place to make them really focus on this relationship and this companion. I think one of the biggest sins that Big Finish are guilty of kind of going forward is self-indulgence. And that's at least in part because all the toys are out of the box now. They can do whatever they want with whatever they want. And the sense of restraint which is exercised here, the sense that we have something which is controlled and small and delicate and beautiful is what adds so much to circular time. We get away from that idea of self-indulgences, even although, like I said, like setting something in 15 seconds of a regeneration cycle is like about as self-indulgent as you can get and yet it's not and that restraint that control that detail is is what makes not just winter but all i think of circular time such a such a glorious release it's very small scale it's very low-key but in embracing all that kind of low-key elements embracing all those things which are so special and unique and fragile to this kind of relationship it, it's able to to deliver something that i i just i don't know i i don't think modern big finish could do this and and that in itself just makes this so much sort of worth savoring worth taking the time to enjoy because you know as we have with both circular and linear time, this this was linear time and its time has passed and I don't know that we'll ever have it again. Yeah, and I, I also think that another thing that I want to call out, because I know you were mentioning this earlier, is like, um, you know, in terms of like, as we say, where its setting is, like, Caves of Androzani is my favorite Doctor Who story. It has been from the, the day I watched it, which is, oh God, many, many years ago at this point, I guess like 17 or so years ago. Um, and like, there is a part of me that like, I am weirdly protective of the Caves of Androzani. Like, I actually really liked the fact that for a long time, 
it, it's one of the very, it was one of the, it seemed to be one of the very few pieces of Doctor Who lore that was not expanded on elsewhere. Like, say, uh, I mean, another all-time great story, like Robots of Death has been, had had so many sequels and expansions and a whole, like, vaguely continuous crossover Blake 7 spinoff series. It's had a lot. And, like, it, it that's cool in its own way. But I loved the fact that Androzani felt singular for a long time. Um, it sort of annoys me that, of all things, the Doctor and the Widow in the Wardrobe was the one story to actually, like, put in an Androzani reference. Um, so, like, I am not, like, off... Like, I am, like, one of the people who's sort of weirdly averse to... Or at least very suspicious of that part of Winter. Um, because it is, just to my mind, just so... Uh, I, I'm, like, reverent of Caves of Androzani. Which is a ridiculous sentence, and I'm aware as I say it, but it's true. Um, and yet, I think it earns the right to be set in the middle of Caves of Androzani is is the admittedly over-the-top and ridiculous and overwrought way that I'm going to put that. Um, and I think that it, as you say, like the fact that it is not about like uh, ticking a lot of continuity boxes or um, like it's it's not that it's trying to answer a mystery. It is sort of just, or, or you know, saying, hey, that, that part was never fully explained why the point of Winter is not to explain why did the Doctor's regeneration seem different in Caves of Androzani than it did in the others. It does have things to say about that, but it doesn't really matter. And I think that the it is much more about saying, well, what does it say about the Doctor, this particular Doctor, that those companions, his companions, his friends, appeared to him in his moment of death? He is a Doctor defined by his friends, and in this instance... In part, maybe, yes, because of the logistical reality that Sarah Sutton was, was ready to record and Janet Fielding wasn't. And there's an alternate universe where Janet Fielding was down to bring Tegan back from the get-go. And all of Big Finish history is different as a result. But that's not the history that we got. And because of that happenstance, we, we uh, Big Finish and Doctor Who fans in general got to discover how Nyssa is, in fact, the perfect quintessential companion for the Fifth Doctor that she... she fits him like a glove, their character dynamic is the best way to understand the Fifth Doctor, and Winter is that final coda to that relationship uh, that has been spotlighted in all these different ways over the previous three releases. It, it, it is just, it's really, really well done, and as we say, it is that weird thing about how it is of this very particular moment in time, and honestly of this very particular set of real-world circumstances but it's not just because that. It's not just because Sarah Sutton was available. It's because they started telling stories in this in this little gap between Time Flight and Arc of Infinity, and they discovered something really beautiful in the character dynamics, and Circular Time is the result of that. So it's really cool to sort of reflect on the fragility of that, but also the rightness of it all, I guess. I think that is the perfect place to end this discussion. Thank you so much, Alistair, for coming back to the podcast. Oh, you are so welcome. This has been a blast, and I'm really glad that I've been able to get us out to an absurd, overlong length, as is my podcasting want. So, you're welcome. Well, I didn't think Search Your Time, if any store deserves it, it's this one, for sure. It really is, yeah. Um, why don't you give a plug of like, what podcast or whatever you're doing these days? I'm doing all sorts of things, some of which are online and some of which are, are you know, my day job. Um... I will say this, uh, obviously the reason why I am of interest in the Doctor Who world to the extent that I am is because of uh, my work on Debating Doctor Who, a podcast that has 
Um, admit, somewhat like the new series, honestly, just takes random long breaks for no reason other than, um, well, in their case, it's because of austerity. I don't know what our excuse is, but um, so hopefully um, I've been sort of alluding to this on Twitter, which I've recently returned to, um, much like uh, Professor Yana starting to hear um, the masters uh, in the fob watch. Uh, the drums are starting to beat again. I think, I think uh, pay attention to this space. There may be um, more podcasts coming there. And then otherwise, um, I continue to have a little bit of a presence over at the AV Club. I'm reviewing uh, the, the current season of Bob's Burgers. And, uh, you know, listen, if someone wants to give me money to have me write reviews of, uh, of the upcoming series, what is it, series 12 of Doctor Who, I'm down. I don't know if there's still a market for that. Instead, I would just say um, my former podcasting co-host, Caroline Sita, she, she does great reviews, taking over from what I used to do there. Um, so, yeah, but in general, uh, and I'm also at Alistair Wilkins on Twitter if people just want to tweet me random Big Finish thoughts or, or Doctor Who thoughts. That's really what I use it for is just to get my random Doctor Who ideas out there when I don't have uh, uh, a podcast to share them with. So y'all have uh, really done a controlled burn of a lot of Doctor Who thoughts so of, of mine, so I appreciate that. All right, fantastic. Um, yeah, if you want to get in touch with this podcast, you can email us at you at gmail.com. You can also find us on Twitter at TalkingWhoToYou. I'm on Twitter at KevKoser, that is K-E-V-K-O-E-S-E-R, and you can find more of JG's writings at www.jgmcquarry.scott. That is J-G-M-C-Q-U-A-R-R-I-E dot Scott. Please like, rate, review, subscribe to the podcast, and every podcast you're using to help other people find it. Fantastic. Thank you very much. And Alistair, thank you very much for joining us this week. It's been fabulous to have you on. Next week, we are going to be returning briefly to the world of video so yes once again we are going to be slightly leaving audio behind and we are going to be reviewing a tv episode and in this case it's going to be the eighth season peter capaldi story kill the moon now we know that this is a divisive story and of course that is exactly why we have chosen to cover it and of course we very much hope that you're all going to join us for it but until then keep talking